Ni hao, and welcome to episode 29 of Further Reflections. I'm your host, Mark A. This episode is being released on March the 3rd, 2019, and it'll be the only episode in March because it's now on a monthly schedule. This is a podcast that features universal themes. It's based in Ottawa, Canada, but the guests are not exclusively from Ottawa, Canada. Recently, I've been branching out to other guests. The guest on this week's episode is Dr. Emma Mardlin. Dr. Emma is based in the UK. She spends a lot of her time in London and the Midlands, and she's written a book called Out of Your Comfort Zone, Breaking Boundaries for a Life Beyond Limits. And so there'll be a half-hour interview with Dr. Emma. Uh, I found out about this book. Uh, Actually, I got it before it came out, I think. I'm on the mailing list for the publishing company Inner Traditions, and I've interviewed, this will be the fourth author I've interviewed under that uh, publishing company. I really enjoyed this interview with Emma because Emma is very personable and we actually had a nice conversation uh, kind of outside of the interview uh, too. So uh, also in this episode, I've been experimenting with a new format. So you'll hear from me as well. In the first half, we'll hear from Emma for about half an hour. And then we're gonna hear something about how I broke out of my comfort zone as well. We're going to hear about going back to the year 2004 when I just graduated from university here in uh, Canada. And I was, I don't know, young and uh, looking for the next step in my life. And I decided to go what was initially for a year to China to teach English. And uh, in a way that does seem like stepping outside of my comfort zone because I had only been to Canada, the United States and Europe before that and that was Western Europe and so I'd never really experienced uh, a country that would be really outside of my comfort zone and so I went to Fuzhou and I ended up spending three years in China which you'll probably hear about in other episodes of the podcast but the first year in China I was in the city of Fuzhou in Fujian province and I got to travel to uh, also around Fujian province and I got to travel as well to Jiangsu province, Shanghai, and Hubei province. You'll hear about some of those trips as well. Let's get back to out of your comfort zone for a second. I'm going to read from the uh, back of the book, uh, Out of Your Comfort Zone. So when was the last time you did something that scared you? The last time you really pushed your boundaries, took a risk, and felt you not only bulldoze right through your fear, but in fact use it to propel you forward. Undoubtedly, you will have enjoyed an amazing sense of freedom, allowing you to feel unstoppable and fully absorb life. Now imagine being able to feel this way all the time, because there's nothing to hold you back, not even you. Offering a step-by-step guide to incrementally breaking out of your comfort zone, Emma Mardlin, PhD, equips of equips us with effective working tools to conquer our deepest fears, be they small or big, and harness them to achieve our ultimate goals, establish higher purpose, and get everything we want in life. Whether you experience an intense irrational fear or phobia that plagues you, look back on a lifetime of anxiety, lack confidence, or seek a deeper self-awareness to create a phenomenal change, This guide offers a range of comprehensive resources to help you fully transform your fears, discover your true self, and achieve everything you want in life. Emma Mardlin, PhD, is a clinical therapist and founding partner in the Pinnacle Practice, 
internationally renowned for her work as an author, trainer, and practicing clinician in London, Harley Street, and Nottingham, Dr. M has profoundly changed the lives of many. She's also the author of the acclaimed Mind-Body Diabetes Type 1 and Type 2. So uh, the interview, uh, the majority of the interview will be on fear. And I'm going to do something a little different here. I'm going to play a little short excerpt from the interview, just so you can tell uh, for the listener if it's something you want to hear or maybe you'd like to hear me or maybe this episode isn't for you. So we're going to hear about a couple, two-minute clip of Emma Mardlin. Yeah, sure. Well, there's so many ways to actually tackle anxiety. And I should say, first of all, if we take a metaphysical approach, anxiety is actually a good thing that alerts us that our minds are working properly because it's literally just a feeling to tell us that we need to focus on something, something that needs addressing, whatever that is. So that may be a physical ailment that's actually causing anxiety. It may be something psychological, the the deep emotional triggers and that's often usually the case it may be a hyperintuitive brain it could even be a lack of b vitamins so there's lots of reasons but either way people need to remember that anxiety is a good thing it's just telling us that we need to focus on something there's something that needs addressing because something isn't quite right generally speaking with anxiety yeah there are some brilliant foods that we can eat that really help us with that so for example there's porridge I don't know if you like porridge Mark but um, it's great for inducing serotonin which is a a feel-good chemical so that can help counter anxiety Um, any foods that contain lots of B vitamins are fantastic because a lack of B vitamin triggers stress it increases anxiety um, uneasiness irritation fatigue and also mental illness but bees are great even taking a b vitamin tablet because it just helps to regulate the body's main functions and metabolize glucose as well so that prevents adrenaline surges and you know too much adrenaline is what causes the anxiety in the first place welcome back and uh, like i said hopefully that interests you enough to listen to dr emma I really enjoyed my interview with Emma. It's one of the more uh, fun interviews I've had, I would say. One of the more, uh, again, very personable and enjoyable interview. Uh, In the second half of the podcast, for about 45 minutes, you're going to hear my first year in China from September 2004 to around July of 2005. And I don't know if China is something you're interested in, but it was interesting to think back now, years later, on that year, I haven't been back to the city of Fuzhou in Fujian province since then. And I kind of did this off the cuff. So there's lots of things I could have talked about, but it was very spontaneous. And so what you hear is what you're going to get. But hopefully there's a few insights about uh, different places in China in the interview, and it will uh, capture your attention. But I will give you uh, here another two-minute excerpt from that. Uh, I will give you a little two-minute excerpt of the talk about Fujo to see if that's something you're interested in. Again, that runs after the Emma interview for about 45 minutes. So here's myself talking about my first year in China. Shortly after dating, we visited uh, 
I won't go too much into this trip, but we went, uh, I believe it's south of Fuzhou, to the city of Puqian for, for a holiday. I think it was a long weekend or something, and then we went to Puqian, and um, Puqian's kind of a nice city, not too big, and she'd never been there before. She was from uh, Xiamen City, from a district called Tong'an, which uh, was proved to be kind of rural, but Xiamen is a big city and an important city in Fujian province. But we went to Puqian and we went across the, I guess the, uh, the ocean, I suppose, to an island called Meizhou Wan, which is uh, to do with Mazu, the, I guess, the goddess of seafaring and stuff uh, in the traditional religions. And uh, they had all this worship of her there. It was a unique place, but I think we went at not the best time of year because it was probably uh, November or something. So it wasn't the peak uh, tourist season. It, it was a little bit run, shut down. There wasn't a whole lot going on. There were only a handful of hotels. It was very difficult to find food there after a certain hour because everything was kind of shut down. But we kind of got, it almost like felt like we had this place to ourselves. It was a fairly sizable island. It was a memorable experience, and when we were in Putian, we visited this Shaolin temple, which was also cool. One of the cool parts about it was it was in the mountains, and we drove on this motorcycle, seemed like a half an hour or something through the mountains, and it was really gorgeous, really beautiful scenery. And so I have the memories of that trip. Hopefully you'll stick around for the whole podcast, or at least part of it, and I hope you enjoy this uh, episode. And you'll join us again in April for a new episode. This is Mark A. of Further Reflections. And we'll catch you next time. Take care. Dr. Emma Maudlin, and I am the author of Out of Your Comfort Zone, Breaking Boundaries Beyond Limits, where you can conquer your fears, limitations, holdbacks for phenomenal results in life going forward. These are further reflections. Okay, so we're joined on further reflections today by Dr. Emma Maudlin, and welcome to the podcast, Emma. Hi, Mark. Thank you for inviting me on the show. Pleasure to be here talking about the book today. So normally the first question I ask is to introduce yourself in general to the to the audience and then don't give too much away at 
first about the book, but uh, introduce yourself in general, and then we can go into the, your new book and stuff like that. Sure. Well, I'm a consultant clinical therapist, um, a metaphysical researcher, author, obviously, and I also train in what I do. So essentially, that just means I work with the mind in order to activate positive changes um, psychologically, physically within the body, and also just in general in life. So I'm usually quite quite a useful person to help people get on and better themselves through life whether that's psychologically or physically or with the tangible things as well making more money or you know excelling in business those sort of things i also work on um reversing type 1 diabetes and other um conditions physical conditions and psychological conditions by getting to the real core emotional roots of those um, and also training personal and professional development to over here in the UK to businesses and also um, corporates in the military and police forces out in the Middle East as well. So generally speaking, I'm quite a do quite a broad spectrum of things, but essentially it's working with the mind in order to help people. You've written the book uh, out of your comfort zone. In the subtitle, Breaking Boundaries for a Life Beyond Limits. So why don't you uh, tell us, I think you've written in the book, who or what would you be if you had no comfort zone? So why don't you introduce the book uh, in general to the to the listeners. Yes, great. Well, essentially, it's a book about taking the reader on a journey of self-discovery and being able to let go of uh, irrational fears, anxieties, limitations and holdbacks to then go forward and discover who you really are. So develop that self-awareness and establish what your blueprint in life really is. So what you really want to be and who you really are, and then putting methods and mechanisms in place to actually achieve that and determine your own future so there's quite a lot of aspects to the book and even sometimes to help realize what your actual limitations and fears are in the first place because unless you ask the question of who or what could you be if you had no comfort zone you're not forced to actually know that you don't push forward or break boundaries. You're not forced to realise what your limitations are. And a large purpose of writing the book was because life can so easily sweep us by that we don't actually get a chance for the sort of self-analysis and going deep inside ourselves to evoke those changes. And we can make some phenomenal changes once we can unlock certain keys and lose certain inhibitions and develop a, a great mindset and unstoppable mindset such that no one or nothing ever has to get in your way so that's essentially what the book's about a very brief synopsis there we'll come back we'll start with fear i think because uh, it's a big part of the book we can start with that but tell us uh, why fear is such a central component to the book well fear is ultimately there's basically there's two emotions in the world if we take this metaphysically so we have love and we have fear and everything else is derived from either one of those now fear is tends to be on the side of negative emotions um so take anger for example and um, that would ultimately pertain back to fear and I can talk lots and, and go on with that. But any irrational fear actually causes blockages of energy 
within us so it prevents us from doing things and going forward now there's all different kinds of fear that we have and some fear is actually good for us and it is what drives us forward so it's determining the difference but the natural fear is a performance anxiety which we can all get but we push through it and that actually can make us better at what we do because it's just a case of being more conscientious we also have instinctive fear which is absolutely imperative to have um, and we must hold on to because that's what protects us that's what protects us from walking too close to the edge of an enormous cliff or you know um, something hitting us in the face if we don't duck quickly so instinctive and natural fear absolutely imperative to have and, and they're good things to utilize um, I even talk about something called the rush effect which is a positive fear so for example you may be nervous queuing up for any um enormous roller coaster ride um, especially if someone like me that's had intensive fears of heights you know you would still feel nervous queuing up but then the you still do it because the rush of adrenaline and the feel good factor once you've actually done that is such a great feeling it does give you that rush effect um, so that again is is where fear is good or even you know people get nervous before they do big talks out in public but then once they've done it the feeling is just exhilarating and that's a, a great thing which I recommend people do to push their boundaries and get those feel-good factors and I think that's something that's generally thought of with when you say the title out of your comfort zone it's pushing boundaries and feeling the fear However, this book takes it to a different level because we're not just talking about that. We're talking about dealing with irrational fears. And they're the things that really hold you back. They're what cause you to have a problem in life where you can't actually do something. It's preventing you from moving forward. Um, and also we have so much background fear in life at the moment, something I refer to as new age fear, again, which I'm sure we'll talk more about but um, the predominance of fear be that background fear or subjective in terms of ourselves and how that can hold us back that's really why it's so central to the book now there's three ways to get over your comfort zone one of them is screw it just do it philosophy kind of push your boundaries and, and put yourself out there and in this case for me with heights that's something I had to do which fortunately I've been raised that way to just do it and get over it and get on with it um, but I actually train abroad in the United Arab Emirates and usually the training courses are on the first floor of a college or a hotel conference room this particular time I didn't actually know where the course was and it was all very last minute and lo and behold it was actually the conference room was on the top of a, a very big skyscraper hotel unfortunately because of the uh, working contract I couldn't enlist my colleague to do it for me and I did try every trick in the book to relocate it um, but there was no chance and there would have been major implications had I not done this particular course so I literally had to give myself a far greater purpose and focus on the bigger purpose than me and my nerves and just go and do it so I had to go up all these flights of stairs and it was so um, well, I took the lift so far, but then it was so high, there was a flight of stairs I had to go up. So I was absolutely 
it wasn't a very nice experience going through it but obviously I have the coping mechanisms to do that through the work I do but just doing it um got me to the top and that actually that point was when I realized huh I can actually do this it's not that bad and I saw all the views I'd been missing out on you know not being able to do that so literally then I had to face my fear and just do it but that particular method it's not always possible and it's not always possible when we talk about intangible fears rather than you know just the tangible ones um so things like fear of change fear of failure or the intangible fears that sometimes we need to build up resilience for and allow ourselves to put ourselves in the space in the first place and then we have a third way of breaking out of your comfort zone which is really tackling the root causes of fear in general um, but also your subjective fears and working to release all those and release any limitations so then you can go forward a total emotional cleansing in order to free that space in your mind to then go inside and realize who and what do you really want to be how can you align with your blueprint now you've got rid of all those nasty negative emotions that have once been holding you back so then you can go on and live that life beyond limit oh absolutely most fears that are the real ones that hold people back are the intangible fears the things we can't grab hold of so you know a lot of people are used to oh scared of heights or scared of spiders and various tangible things and and they can be all sorts of different things I've heard that that people can be scared of but if it's important to someone it's incredibly important to them no matter how funny it may appear but certainly yes intangible fears are the big ones fear of change fear of failure um fear of success even uh, the fear of public speaking even the fear of people sometimes or there's even phobias of the opposite sex and you know how limiting that could be especially in terms of you know forging a relationship so they're they're just endless because as I said it's subjective and it's what we internalize as individuals that really creates those intangible fears and you write in the book about eating away your fear and you've talked about anxiety reducing foods so Yeah, sure. Well, there's so many ways to actually tackle anxiety. I should say, first of all, if we take a metaphysical approach, anxiety is actually a good thing that alerts us that our minds are working properly because it's literally just a feeling to tell us that we need to focus on something, something that needs addressing, whatever that is. So that may be a physical ailment that's actually causing anxiety. It may be something psychological, the the deep emotional triggers and that's often usually the case it may be a hyperintuitive brain it could even be a lack of b vitamins so there's lots of reasons but either way people need to remember that anxiety is a good thing it's just telling us that we need to focus on something there's something that needs addressing because something isn't quite right generally speaking with anxiety yeah there are some 
brilliant foods that we can eat that really help us with that. So, for example, there's porridge. I don't know if you like porridge, Mark, but um, it's great for inducing serotonin, which is an, a feel-good chemical. So that can help counter anxiety. Um, any foods that contain lots of B vitamins are fantastic because a lack of B vitamin triggers stress. It increases anxiety, um, uneasiness, irritation, fatigue, and also mental illness. But bees are great even taking a B vitamin tablet because it just helps to regulate the body's main functions and metabolize glucose as well. So that prevents adrenaline surges. And, you know, too much adrenaline is what causes the anxiety in the first place but um, a good thing to have um, is magnesium and that's that's contained in spinach and salmon because that helps to regulate cortisol levels and cortisol is the actual stress hormone so there's the um, a brilliant piece in the book that explains all about different foods that really um, help if you eat them and the nutrients that you can get from them as to why they do what they do and why they can help to dilute the anxiety. Obviously, the main key is always tackling the roots cause of anxiety and knowing what that is. But certainly nutrition helps and makes a big difference. Even something like having black tea um, because we have L-theanine, which is a property in the black tea that uh, reduces the caffeine effect, which also causes anxiety. Um, but it's also been researched to show that it has a relaxed, calming, but alert effects. So as well as negating the effects of the tea's caffeine, um, it helps us to feel more calm and um, collected so, yeah, there's certainly plenty of properties in foods that we can have to help. We can move on from fear, but you did mention new age fear. So if you want to say a little more about that before we move on. Uh... Yeah, sure. As we said before, lots of the tangible and the intangible fears are subjective. And they certainly are the main points that need addressing. But it's also important to look at something I call new age fear because it's a pressing background fear. And we seem besieged as a globe at the moment by an anxiety epidemic almost I mean we've got children that lock themselves in the room and don't want to go out because their anxieties are, are that bad um, and they're being put on antidepressants um, even anti-anxiety tablets uh, propranolol is um, being actually dished out in some schools but a, a lot of people we find in are actually on antidepressants as well they're just being given these tablets and it seems even people that are generally confident people or even people in business that I see um, are feeling this anxiety and it's something I talk about that I put down to is our lives being so much more exposed and subject to scrutiny and I think social media doesn't help with that because we are living in a constant world of comparisons and when people focus on that they get drawn into it but if you think about how many times, you know, you probably yourself or myself, you know, on the smartphone, we don't get a break from it. We don't get any respite or reprieve from the 24-7 communication that's going off. We've got 24-7 news, which is like doomsday every day. We've got Dr. Google that can scare the life out of somebody. And 
also the so there's so much information about and not enough wisdom it's you know just there's a crazy cloud at the moment and it seems a lot of people get really drawn into it and also I think as a society we led a lot of the time to believe that pills are the answer and you can just take a pill and it will be okay but actually a lot of the antidepressants they even increase anxiety and those feelings so it's something that I talk a lot about in the book and um, I've helped some great clients of mine to actually come off anti-anxieties and anti-depressants um, and they've now felt so much better and we've tackled the real root causes and where their focus goes so subjective fears and this background fear to then look at you know what they really want in life and actually what does make somebody happy what would you want if you can have anything one of my main questions in therapy is always if I had a, ma- a magic wand what would you like me to grant you because we need a a focus and an outcome to actually work towards because as I said life can sweep us by so easily and with all this anxiety around it can really cloud thinking and free thoughts um so one of the answers to all the new age fear is about focus and having a far greater purpose in life that keeps you motivated and keeps you driving on as opposed to getting sucked into this world of comparisons I mean you can even buy likes on Facebook or followers on Twitter and so and then anybody that doesn't know that they will go on these platforms think why is that person so popular and I'm not or you know all these different concepts or you go on LinkedIn and everybody does everything is so wonderful and it's so easy to get sucked into this false reality that then makes people feel quite down because they think they're not that or they're not good enough and so it really becomes back back down to focus again basically being able to have that time to go inside ourselves and think about what do we really want that can take this anxiety away do you want to talk about the quantum because you did mention that's something of interest to you maybe people aren't always that familiar with it but Sure. Well, once we've actually realized our fears and limitations and holdbacks, and then we've worked hard to get rid of them, release them, going through the book, and we know exactly what we want, gone through the process of self-awareness, um, actually what is our blueprint in life? What do we really want? If we could be or have anything, what's those things we really want? Once we've done that, so we've totally emotionally cleansed and got rid of all those blockages in the body, we're basically just a beam of energy ready to go forward and and get the things that we want. So then we can fully align with our blueprint. And it gets really interesting now because this is how we can actually determine our future using the quantum. And lots of times people aren't always familiar with the quantum world or how and why it works. And it's certainly a no comfort zone area, but it's essentially based on the physical principle of like attracts like in terms of particles and energy. So it's where the intangible, like our thoughts, emotions and deep belief system meets with the material world in order to form our future. This may all sound a bit 
gobbledygook at first but once you actually read it in the book and you've worked through the book from beginning to end it will really all make sense and of course you'll then have no boundaries and comfort zones so you'll be able to go on and process this much easier but using this principle there's then methods and techniques that we put in place so we can actually make those deep thoughts emotions and beliefs actually become real in the material world in terms of this these particles and energy essentially that's how the universe works so if we think about it simply um it's like we live in a yes universe in terms of what we deep down think and believe so you you'll have heard the, the same mark it's written in the stars in terms of you know somebody they were always meant to be something or you know you see famous people you think you hear about stories when they were little and it was like they were always meant to be famous they're always going to have that life and that's because those kind of people have the thoughts emotions and deep belief system from such a young age and therefore it does become written in the stars and quite literally the universe responds in accordance with that in order to form their future going forward so as i say this is phenomenally uh, an exciting bit so in very simple terms it's a case of like attracts like at the very core level that's why if we can get rid of limitations blockages and fears that actually block the positive energy and we just become one positive energy with nothing getting in the way then we will attract more positive energy back to us and then we start creating the life we really want because that blueprint then becomes our focus without anything or anyone getting in the way this is not in the book but i I am interested in traveling quite a bit and i've traveled quite a bit but i'd I'd like to hear more more about uh the UAE and what uh, what was happening there and your impressions of it maybe oh that was a, f- a fantastic place and certainly um one aspect where I did push my own boundaries because when I had the opportunity to go and train out there various courses anything to do with psychology and um training like I said, the the military and the police forces, how to get into state, how to deal with their emotions and essentially a, a, an unstoppable mindset, you know, when faced with certain issues um, as much as different ways in, of thinking that helps us to get on. Um, so initially, first of all, I've never been to the Middle East, um, so I wasn't quite sure what to expect. And obviously we've heard lots of stories so I didn't even know if a woman as a woman a female trainer that I would perhaps feel a little bit repressed so I was a little bit reluctant I suppose at first whether to explore this particular option but I was asked several times by a particular company if I would go and do it and you know they said I I would enjoy it so I didn't even know at the time if I would have to dress up in the burqa or you know how I was but I'm very much for on the side of freedom and expression however anybody wants to express themselves and so I didn't know how curtailed I was going to have to be Um, but actually going and just pushing my own boundaries um, I went and it was it was fantastic it was a great experience and everybody was very welcoming my first 
time over there, I was in a place called Alain, which is not not known as much because most people are just familiar with Dubai, which is a fantastic place in itself, full of glitz and glam. Um, is Dubai and this was more of a authentic experience in Alain so I particularly liked that Um, and that was something I enjoyed doing and I really got to engage with local people and find out a lot about the the culture and there are lots of similarities as well and even experiencing different foods was very exciting but again pushing me out of my comfort zone because you know things that I'd never had before and also um, I'm a vegetarian so that was uh, interesting over there you know in terms of the halal meat they have um, you know and different values and different ways of thinking about that so uh, like I said I had to put myself out there to experience different things but absolutely it was worth doing it my my first training session was a train the trainers so I was training people that was already training these particular organizations so again that was pushing me because these people already knew how to train and you know what they were doing so I I was subject to scrutiny there and I had to do a good job as well to push on for this particular contract but actually it was an interesting story going over for the first time because I was very ill on the plane and I say very ill it was very serious (laughs) such that the airline was talking about having to land but the way we had to fly to the Middle East it was actually over the war zone with everything going on with Syria and um, all all over those areas so we had to fly at very high altitude Uh, so that didn't help and I felt awful but there was absolutely no way I was allowing the plane to have to land and you know put everybody at risk so I really had to control my own state with that and you know they were talking about having ambulances meet me off the plane then when we did go to the United Arab Emirates but I said it was was fine and and I managed I basically um felt pretty awful all week but I I went in and I just you know got on with the training distracted myself but that was another time shall we say when I was pushing my boundaries and out of my comfort zone but all the other times I've been you know it's been absolutely fantastic I made some fantastic Arabic friends and it's definitely worth visiting Um, and it's you know they're very friendly and make you feel welcome so it's certainly an experience I would say great to you know just go and do it. Let me ask you to talk about a little bit about Mind Body Diabetes just mention that book and uh, also the pinnacle practice if you want. Yeah sure that would be great well my other book is Mind Body Diabetes that's the first book I did um, how to stop and reverse and just deal with type 1 and type 2 diabetes it's actually known a lot now that you can reverse type 2 diabetes which absolutely you can do but I said this uh, two decades ago so so I do know what I'm talking about believe it or not Uh, but it's also possible with type 1 as well because 
every single cell, every every single thought we have affects every single cell in the body. And this particular book talks us through that and all the science behind it and all about cell memory and how our thoughts affect our emotions and therefore our physical health. Um, like you wouldn't believe there's so many examples and so many cases. Um, and it's up to people how far they want to take this, but at the very least, it it will help you to ensure that diabetes type 1 or type 2 is never a problem because it really doesn't have to be a lot of the time people take it um diabetes exceptionally serious um and become really engrossed and focused in it and actually when we start to think about it differently we start to get different results so that book is great in terms of however far you want to take it, you can go right through to reversing the condition. Um, and as I said, that's what I research and do in terms of type 1 diabetes. So there I'm always well out of my comfort zone because very little understood. But actually on my medical notes now, I have type 1 diabetes in remission because I've worked to be on that much minimal insulin. I've had phenomenal results with what I've done and working with mind body medicine um so it's very interesting and a, a very interesting read so please feel free to check out the reviews of it and what people have to say on that and also we have the uh, pinnacle practice which is my day-to-day -day business so i do see a lot of people who want to work positively with diabetes but all kinds of conditions be they physical or psychological and emotional and Sometimes people that just want to go in a process of personal evolution in life to better themselves, to understand themselves better or to really reach that goal and outcome that they want in life. So it is really exciting in terms of what, how you can work with the mind and what you can achieve when you let go of certain limitations, holdbacks, fears, whatever it is, it can be let go of. And whatever you have, whether that's psychological or physical, there's always a different way to think about it and then a different way to get those results that you really want. Different thinking, different results is, I guess, the ultimate premise there. Why don't you tell people where they can get uh, out of your comfort zone and or your website or anything you want to share at the end? Sure, you can purchase Out of Your Comfort Zone or Mind Body Diabetes from Amazon.com, from Barnes & Noble, all good bookstores or Waterstones. Um, but you can also visit my website, which is all the W's, outofyourcomfortzone.uk. Or, and that will link you to all my other sites that will link you to the Pinnacle Practice site and also Dr. M but if you want to just check out that site it's all the W's drcentral-em.co.uk but as I said if you just go on the out of your comfort zone.uk site you'll find everything you need to there and also I should quickly say on that particular site, you can go ahead and take the zone test for free, which is basically introspective quiz, which you can take part in with a very specific series of questions that will that will help you discover where you're at at the moment in terms of your own personal comfort zone. Um, so that's something I always say do at the beginning of the book and then check it out again at the end of the book so you can 
work through it and check on your progress how how far you've come what you've done and then also look at where you might need to go back to as well so it really highlights certain points and initially it highlights what your fears or limitations may even be if you don't realize what they are particularly at the moment so you can take that freely it's all all there on the website for you out of your comfort zone dot uk let me let me just say uh Thank you, Emma, for appearing on the uh, podcast today. Oh, you're very welcome. It's great to chat, Mark. This is Mark A. Welcome to Further Reflections. I'm going to talk about... This is Mark A. Welcome to Further Reflections. I'm going to talk today and uh, in the future as well, but uh, today I'm going to focus on about a year of my life from 2004 to 2005, September 2004 to be exact, to probably around July of 2005. At that time, I was, uh, I can set it up. But uh, I ended up going to China, to Fuzhou, China, to teach English as a second language. And I went there. I don't know what expectations I had, but I ended up staying three years in China and making a six-year career, I guess you could say, of teaching as a second language. So today I'm going to talk about the experience in the city of Fuzhou, China. So I'm going to set this up. So it was 2004, and in 2004 I was studying, and there there might be another podcast where I go into more detail about the ups and downs of university, but I was 23 years old, studying at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. It's in Canada. And um, I was taking, in my last semester of university, I took this class, which was a um, modern Chinese history class and it was an elective class. Essentially I was studying English literature but I ended up with this elective history class of uh, Chinese history and I don't know it impressed me to some degree and I I kinda got it in my mind while I wanted to teach do something when I graduated and teaching English was something that people talked about doing and I thought maybe I'd go to China based on the fact that I was taking this class and it sounded interesting. I don't actually remember too much about specifics from the class. I believe the professor's last name was Hill, but I forget her first name. But, uh, you know, it was pretty interesting. They went from pretty much around the Qing Dynasty, which I forget when they actually started, but the Qing Dynasty went to maybe a few hundred years up till the early 1900s and then you had kind of the uh, Sun Yat-sen, and then you went into uh, kind of what's uh, Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong, then the Communist China and things like that. And they talked a lot about kind of China's modernization in this class and opening to the West a little bit. Um, well, first of all, they kind of opened to the West a bit in the Qing Dynasty, I think, but then 
then China kind of uh, closed off a bit and then it opened to the West again with uh, Deng Xiaoping in the late 1970s going into the uh, and ever since then I guess so I had it in my mind well I'd go to China and uh, I took I needed I don't know it would I thought it'd be helpful to take some kind of teaching certification course so I did something called Oxford seminars in uh, Ottawa Canada which is where I spent that summer after graduating university and uh, it was a short course but it gives some I don't think it really prepared me as well it wasn't uh, probably internationally recognized as much as some of them but it, you know people take these short courses they give you an idea of what teaching's like you get a little bit of practice but you know it really probably didn't prepare me that well but I think the Chinese school I went to liked me having a certificate and really I didn't do an extensive job search for um, where to teach in China I, I don't even think I looked at that many I somehow I maybe I searched on the internet uh, China teaching job or something and I I think I'd only applied for maybe the one job even and it came up it was a school in uh, Fuzhou China which is in Fujian province which is southeast China I suppose it's on the coast and it's uh, across from Taiwan I didn't know much about Fuzhou to be honest or, or Fujian province when I went there but it sounded interesting and I had some talk with someone who was recruiting for this school and the school is no longer in existence and I don't mind giving the name of the school it was called the Fuzhou International Language Vocational School and um, I didn't really know much about it at the time but it was actually located inside the campus of the Fujian Agricultural and Forestry University and so you know I ended up accepting the job in Fuzhou and I went in September of 2004 and when I first went to China I was a vegetarian for probably at least a year before that and it was mostly for health reasons not some kind of ethical reasons I, I felt better and I lost some weight and it just uh, I don't know I just felt good about it but I kinda thought well I'd probably give this up if I couldn't find easy access to uh, to food and uh, I'll tell you in a second what happened with that but I f it was interesting when I flew to uh, China for the first time I flew to Hong Kong and uh, there was a big typhoon in uh, Fujian because it it gets a lot of uh, things like that and so the flight was delayed and so I had a bit of time in Hong Kong Airport and Hong Kong Airport is still probably the most impressive airport I've seen I've spent some more time in there later but uh, I didn't leave the airport but I, I do remember going outside and it being really humid and a lot of dragonflies and that was kind of my first introduction to uh, to China when I was waiting and the flight was delayed I was worried I I didn't know at the time, but the Fuzhou airport is located in Changle, which is, uh, set, I don't know, like an over an hour to an hour and a half drive from the city of Fuzhou, and it services other uh, cities and towns in the the area uh, near Fuzhou, I suppose. Fuzhou is the capital of uh, Fujian province, and probably the biggest city in Fujian, or one of them. It's, uh, I looked it up, there's, it says there's 3 million people now in the urban area, but it definitely felt larger than that. Maybe it's a large geographic area, I'm not sure, but it, it sort of felt a bit larger than that. Not as large as some other cities I've been to, but 
pretty large and so I ended up uh, being delayed but when I got to Fuzhou um, I was picked up and luckily you know the typhoon wasn't too uh, disruptive but when I first got into Fuzhou city we drove into the city and um, it was I was pretty hungry and then I thought well there'd be all this I wasn't sure I mean I kind of thought some people had given me the impression that maybe China was still poor and that I wouldn't be able to uh, have good access to food which was not the case at all but when I first got there they brought me to KFC and uh, I later learned that somehow these western things like KFC some kind of status for Chinese people or something or maybe they think foreigners like that but it's also a novel and a kind of status and uh, it's kind of strange to me even thinking about that because I'd eaten in some pretty reasonably priced restaurants that probably cost the same price as KFC but it was a really shock especially being a vegetarian up until pretty much that point so they took me to KFC and I, I got some I don't know chicken burger and uh, takeout for um, to bring back with me to uh, my apartment and so they brought me to this campus which was really nice it was in the uh, Fujian Agricultural and Forestry University a little bit outside of the city center and uh, it was a beautiful it proved to be a beautiful place to live I was living on the campus but going to the school which was inside the campus I was I would probably be like a 10 minute walk or short bike ride to the school and it proved really nice I um yeah it proved uh, really interesting it was beautiful there's little bridges and little ponds and they were you know um it was sort of a getting subtropical Fujian and it felt a bit exotic and um it was definitely more modern the city of Fuzhou than I thought it would be just from a from a first uh, impression there's a lot of skyscrapers it's definitely seen more skyscrapers than somewhere like Ottawa Canada which is where I spent a lot of my life before that um, it definitely seemed modern and I would learn a lot more obviously about it but uh, I was expecting it to be more I don't know Fujian there was a lot of rural parts that I visited but I was expecting Fuzhou to be maybe a little more I don't know the more temples more old buildings and there wasn't that many but uh, I did find that thinking back on China years later Fujian probably did have a lot going for it in terms of it in Fujian province there is a lot of tradition and there is more I think they might be more religious than some other parts of China and sort of uh, they have Taoist temples and Buddhist temples and things like that but there wasn't a huge amount of them that you could see but when I think back on it, it was probably more exotic than my first impressions uh, gave me chance to, to think about. Um, so I, I don't know, I had a few days to myself uh, before I started teaching at this school. And uh, I kind of, um, I think they were trying to manhandle, not manhandle, but, you know, handle me a bit. Um, they didn't want me exploring too much because they thought maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe it's not prestige but they they thought they could be helpful in taking me places and there was places like Sam's Club which is like Costco and they took me to these places to get things from my apartment but uh, the weird part is 
after a few days I was bored and I wanted to explore and I explored an area near the near the uh, not too far probably near Fujo University which is also just outside the city center and then I explored there's this beach and uh, nice water like area along the it's the Min River the Minjiang River so I explored this area and there's some nice parks around there and then uh, that's not too far from where the Sam's Club is so I spent some time there and um, this is interesting and then um, so eventually I started teaching at this school and I'll give you some of the impressions of the of the school they actually didn't have a first of all it was a school for uh, wealthy kids that were having trouble it was a private school and kids went there that really couldn't go anywhere else they were gonna learn English or Japanese but I think the majority were learning English but there were two Japanese teachers and actually I was the only for that year I was the only English teacher there uh, that wasn't Chinese so I met a lot of Chinese people and and also the Japanese teachers but it felt kind of special that that was the only place that I taught where I was the only if you want to use the word white person but it definitely felt unique and I got to vi visit some of these people got to be friends with them for a while and visit some of their towns which I'll talk about in a minute and it was really quite uh, quite impressive and so uh, I started teaching at this school and what I didn't know was that a lot of the I found out later is that Fujian a lot of the boat people that went to especially America but I think some of them come to Canada there was a lot of problem with legal immigration from Fujian especially I don't know it didn't seem all that poor from the first impressions but I know that some of the students were trying to improve their English so they could illegally go to Canada and the United States which is kind of surprising and again some of them were problems students they they couldn't go to other schools and their parents have money and they spent to go to this private school to basically learn English and uh, it was a pretty small school there weren't that many classes I ended up teaching they didn't really have a curriculum there which was uh, I don't know if that's surprising but it was difficult having kind of I had to wing it a lot because I I never really taught before and at first I was just trying to tell them something about Canada but it proved I couldn't really lecture to them these kids were teenagers ranging from maybe 15 to 18 or something like that and so it was very difficult to just give a standard lecture a lot of them seemed to have if not behavior problems they uh, they you know had some kind of um, problem with attention spans and things like that so with the younger students I ended up using a picture dictionary and built lessons around that and uh, it proved popular in the school it was something I bought before I went to China I just thought it could be useful and it proved very useful and those were the easiest lessons and I think maybe because they were first-year students and they maybe didn't have that much experience with uh, foreign teachers and things they were very respectful and it was a, almost a joy I suppose to teach those kids but uh, teaching the older students which was I think there were only two years there or something they only went for two or three years but teaching the older kids they were much more rebellious and only a handful of them really wanted to learn in my experience it was a it was a challenge 
and I used a combination of things. I did some, we showed some movies, which was somewhat interesting. We played something called Crazy English, which was a, a kind of speaking activity where you you lose yourself. A lot of people are self-conscious about speaking English in public, so it's, it's more speaking out loud and not worrying about the consequences. We did that. We did some other interactive activities and um, things like that, but it was a lot less uh, focused on the picture dictionary activities. I found it more difficult to teach those kids, uh, more challenging. Uh, like I said, maybe only a handful seemed very interested in me. And they were younger, so at that age they maybe couldn't, you couldn't talk too in depth about uh, experiences from Canada and other things. And also I was 23 and if not naive, uh, had not that much worldly experience at that time. So I really only traveled to England and parts of the Netherlands and maybe briefly to Spain and Portugal before that and, and the United States, but not really much more than that. So this was a, a learning experience uh, for me. And shortly after I uh, started teaching at this uh, <coughs> vocational language school in uh, Fuzhou, it was the uh, holiday, the mid-autumn festival. And people were going away on the mid-autumn festival, but I, I didn't know anyone, and I didn't know much about Fujian, and I, I was new there, and I didn't know where to go, but people went away on holiday. And I'd made a friend, uh, couple of friends, or several friends at this school, They're, a lot of them, the friends were the ones that English were was uh, high because they could communicate with me easier, but there was one friend of mine, another teacher, he was a few years older than me, he might have been 10 years older than me or something uh, like that, but he, he was still young and he befriended me and he offered, because I didn't have anywhere to go for this holiday and I didn't know anyone at that time, he offered to take me to visit his family in uh, a small, I don't know, it's not a village, maybe a, a town, I guess you could say, in also in Fujian province. And I don't remember now the name of the place, which is a shame. I remember the names of other places, but not this place. But it was a good while from Fuzhou. We took a bus to a place called Fu'an, where his wife's family lived. And so we spent an afternoon with his wife's family. And Fuan's like, yeah, a couple hours, two, three hours away. This was a small town. I, I don't think it's a city. But, you know, we got to see that and meet his, some of his uh, family, his wife's family and his wife's uh, father, who told me some interesting stories about uh, how they were, a lot of Fujian people have family in Taiwan and vice versa, but at that time, they couldn't easily travel to Taiwan, so there was a, you know, a disconnect between visiting these people, but they had ties to Taiwan, and I think it opened up a little few years after I left, but some interesting stories about, he was old and he'd lived through, I think some of the times he'd lived through the separation of China and Taiwan and the communist times and the things like that, so we heard some stories, and um, we went onwards that afternoon to his another two or three hours, I suppose, on the bus, more rural part, to uh, his brother, I think it was his brother's uh, living in this town. He grew up in the area. His father lived in a 
place. His father was still alive. His mother had passed away, but his father was still alive and lived in a a place that was uh, there was no road or any way of assessing it other than walking in the mountains. And Fujian is quite mountainous. And one of the reasons I left Fujian after a year is not because I didn't like it per se, but it felt isolated because it was so much mountains. And there's, I think it had the most regional dialects in China. It was very distinct, but at the same time, it felt insular to some degree. So that's kind of why I left it. But I do have these fond memories of Fujian. But we went over, I don't know, we walked 45 minutes over these, not treacherous mountains, but, you know, those worn paths and things. But we ended up in this small village, or not even a village, and then we visited his father, and he was living in something like poverty, but he was still not, didn't look that unhealthy or, any, or anything. So that was, that was interesting, and then we spent some more time in the this other town where his brother was living and his brother knew the mayor and I met the mayor of uh, of the town that was kind of cool and stuff it was I don't know if I have much to say about it I remember we went to this uh, temple place one time to pray for the ancestors I think because uh, it's part of this mid-autumn festival I think and then um, basically I met a fortune teller who told me you know, my life would be better as I went along kind of thing. I don't know what. A few fortune tellers I've seen in China that I might mention in the future, but this one sort of told me, I believe, you know, my life would get better as it went along, which may or may not have happened so far. I'm uh, 38 right now as opposed to 23 when I went to uh, China for the first time. So then I got back to Fuzhou City, and at that time some interesting thing happened. I got, I don't know, I wasn't expecting this, but I got involved with a, a girl there in a relationship and it happened very quickly and it's still one of the most serious relationships I've had. And uh, I ended up living with her for about a year um, in another city, which I'm going to talk about in the another episode of the podcast. But we started dating. We met very shortly after I got back, I think, from uh, the Mid-Autumn Festival. We may have been in contact just before then, but then I had to go to this holiday. With, and then I kind of, she'd sort of seen me and was interested and left her phone number and things. And then I ended up calling her. I was a little nervous about it, but we kind of hit it off um, and we started dating very quickly after which was kind of cool and uh, you know I don't know it's I haven't actually lived with anyone since so it, it got you know uh, we, after living in Fujo we kind of yeah we lived together but it was an interesting uh, experience and I'll tell more about her family and things I did then but uh, essentially um, we uh, shortly after dating we visited uh, I won't go too much into this trip, but we went, uh, I believe it's south of Fuzhou, to the city of Puqian for, for a holiday. I think it was a long weekend or something, and then we went to Puqian, and um, Puqian's kind of a nice city, not too big, and she'd never been there before. She was from uh, Xiamen City, from a district called Tong'an, which uh, was proved to be kind of rural. 
but Xiamen is a big city and an important city in Fujian province. But we went to Puqian and we went across the, I guess the, uh, the ocean, I suppose, to an island called Meizhou Wan, which is uh, to do with Mazu, the, I guess, the goddess of seafaring and stuff uh, in the traditional religions. And uh, they had all this worship of her there. It was a unique place, but I think we went at not the best time of year because it was probably uh, November or something. So it wasn't the peak uh, tourist season. It, it was a little bit run, shut down. There wasn't a whole lot going on. There were only a handful of hotels. It was very difficult to find food there after a certain hour because everything was kind of shut down. But we kind of got, it almost like felt like we had this place to ourselves. It was a fairly sizable island. It was a memorable experience. And when we were in Putian, we visited this Shaolin temple, which was also cool. One of the cool parts about it was it was in the mountains. And we drove on this motorcycle. Seemed like a half an hour or something through the mountains. And it was really gorgeous. Really beautiful scenery. And so I have the memories of that trip. And then I kind of um, was working in Fuzhou. For a while, I uh, even hooked up with some foreigners at the Fujian Agricultural and Forestry University. There were some foreigners teaching there. We used to do something called English Corner, which is a kind of informal gathering where they could ask questions and practice their English, uh, usually on a in the evenings, and meet some foreigners through that. But I also met a guy who lived in Toronto. He was Chinese, but he lived in Toronto for a number of years, and... Uh, he was interested in me, and he hooked me up with a swimming club, and they used to swim all year round in Fuzhou, even though sometimes the temperature of the water got to 10 degrees, which was pretty cold, but he would they would swim throughout the winter, and it was getting to winter when I started, and that winter I did swim all throughout the winter, and uh, it was kind of uh, a neat experience. On uh, New Year's Day, they had a big swimming thing from a place called Taijiang, which is... Uh, at one part of the Min River, there was a bridge, and they swam, I don't know how many kilometers, down the Min River to another destination, but it was a big, almost, well, I suppose you call it you call it a polar swim here, but it wasn't polar conditions, but it was really cold. It was New Year's, not Chinese New Year, but Western New Year's Day, I think, something like that. That was kind of cool. And uh, then it was um, getting on to the Chinese New Year, and so... I was looking for things to do, and they in China they the school, especially because I was working at a like a school, like a proper school, and and later at universities, you would get more holidays than some private language schools, because the schools would close for the vacations. So I probably got something like six weeks off starting in January and February, and I think in one place in Guangzhou, which is a few years later. I got close to two months or more off, which was amazing. But here I got, I would say I got like at least a month, if not six weeks off. And um, one of the things that happened is my father came to visit me in China. And he was, at the time he lived in uh, the Netherlands in um, The Hague, but his family's originally from Rotterdam. So he came over to China and he visited Fuzhou and he met uh, my girlfriend there at the time and it was kind of neat, uh, you know, It's a sometimes it's a challenging relationship, but I think I have fond memories of that trip. 
he got to stay for free in the vocational school because uh, there were no students there at the time because it was a holiday and things like that. But the problem was when he stayed, there was all these restaurant like dining halls, and, and they're really nice dining halls, and the food is really good, but they kind of uh, closed down for the holidays, so there was very few places to eat. But he's coming for at least two weeks, I think, and uh, one of those weeks we maybe more than two weeks, maybe close to three, I don't know, but we decided to go for maybe eight or nine days to uh, Shanghai and Jiangsu province. We were looking for somewhere to go, and my dad had always wanted to go to Shanghai, so we said, oh, let's go to Shanghai, and I had this guidebook, and we saw Shanghai is not that far from the city of Suzhou, which is a garden city and scholarly place in history where there's a lot of us on the canals and uh, kind of a place of learning and uh, I always wanted to visit the city of Nanjing because we learned in the Chinese history class about its history it's kind of sad history but it used to be the capital of China and it seemed interesting they had this whole imperial past but also this past when it was damaged by uh, the Japanese famously but also um, in Jiangsu, in Nanjing, also there was something called the Taiping Rebellion, where a lot of people were also um, in, the, in the 1800s, I think, where a lot of people were also killed in Nanjing. So it had this checkered history. So we ended up going to all those places. And to me, Shanghai was the least interesting of those uh, three places. Shanghai seemed very modern. Uh, it was, I mean, it, some views are nice. It's all lit up in the night. It's kind of cool at night, but it did seem very modern and uh, a bit soulless. Uh, I I didn't like it too much. We met someone that was selling art there. He's a Westerner from, I think he might have been originally from the United States, but he, he'd been teaching in China and then he moved to Shanghai and he, he told us some interesting things about Shanghai, places to go. That was kind of cool. We stayed in touch for a few years even after that. My dad stayed in touch maybe with him even even longer than that. But uh, we went to Suzhou and uh, it wasn't the best time of year in January so it didn't feel too touristy. I think they can get really touristy at other times of year. But um, I had some positive impressions of Suzhou but I wasn't overly blown away by it. Um, there's some interesting pagodas and, and some gardens and stuff, but it did seem, didn't seem too exotic to me. And Nanjing just seemed, I don't know, I liked Nanjing when I first got there. It just seemed there's some energy there. And people say that Nanjing's on the Yang, Yangtze River and cities that are on the Yangtze kind of, uh, it's the dividing line of China from the north, which is maybe more traditional and conservative. And then in the south, it's more open and a little bit more uh, capitalistic and freewheeling and Fujian is in the south but Nanjing is like a balance of both worlds and that was really cool I somehow I like Nanjing it was really cold in Nanjing at that time of year it can get really cold and really hot there but I really liked Nanjing they it always seemed like something interesting happened in Nanjing yeah. I uh, enjoyed it we were probably there for three days or something we didn't even see everything I I went back twice after that, which I'll talk about later, but I was having a positive impression of Nanjing. And uh, when I got back to, my dad left uh, China, and then I went on another trip with uh, another friend of mine f f 
a te another teacher who was my age, probably, around my age, just about, a young guy, maybe a couple years older than me, but he, he wanted to take me to his town, and I actually met a girl that was a student at the university through my girlfriend, and she, we got to know these people, and she lived in a place called Wuping, which is a small town, I suppose. A side, well, not a small, but a town. And um, she lived there, and we had to go to Wuping to go to my friend's village. So I got to spend time in Wuping and my friend's uh, village. So first we went to this village, which is called Shandong. It's really in the mountains. There's no transport there other than motorcycle or private bus and we rented a private bus because they were all going back there for the Chinese New Year and it was really an eye-opening experience because the kind of the very gender differences there there were the men were kind of treating women in some way that I wasn't used to a bit derogatory and the women were doing all the work and uh, the men were just a lot of them were gambling they seemed very down on their luck and this was an interesting experience um, it was a nice place but I was kind of you know he would go away with his buddies and just leave me with some of these younger girls that would show me around which was which was cool but he kind of abandoned me which was kind of sad but you know it was an interesting experience it was they said that the Westerner or foreigner had never been there before which I don't know if it's true it's probably very inaccessible there's maybe a thousand to maybe a thousand people live there or something I don't know which is few in China, maybe less, I don't know, but it didn't seem very big, and that was uh, interesting. One thing I saw there was uh, a water buffalo being slaughtered on the side of the street, and it really made an impression on me at that time, maybe because I was a vegetarian for a while, I don't know, but it put me off meat for a while, and I tried to be a vegetarian again with, with limited results, but it really shook me a bit for for a while there, and I was... I don't know why it made such an impression. Maybe because I hadn't seen animals being slaughtered before. Although they slaughtered some chickens in this village for the new year. But this was just like visceral. Like it was just on the side of a road and they were cutting its throat and stuff. And this was kind of like, whoa. Uh, but it was an interesting experience. Um, on the new year, people would light a lot of fireworks. And uh, the whole town was shaking. It was like a, being in a almost a war zone because everything firecrackers fireworks and I inhaled a lot of smoke and it made me very sick which was not good because I had to go after that I went to Wuping and I was sick and I didn't enjoy it as much but then I went to Xiamen after that to spend some time with my girlfriend's uh, father and uh, her sisters she had uh Four, three sisters and an adopted brother, which I never met, but apparently uh, they were born, most of them were born before this one-child policy came into effect in China. So, you know, it was somehow okay, but uh, I don't know. She was like the uh, second youngest. She had two older sisters that were quite older, like 10 years older than her, and she had she and her other sister were born around the pretty close to each other so she was shared a bond with her younger sister so I stayed with her younger sister's family and it was surprising because there was seemed to be a lot of uh, I don't know her sister's boyfriend was kind of a gangster type and they seemed to have a lot of money but they were probably involved in some kind of illegal activity but 
I remember damaging my coat and they bought me this fancy coat, which was a reasonably expensive price. They seem, they seem to have a lot of money. And she was getting some treatments for maybe something similar to IVF or something for having a child, which was also probably going to be expensive, but not the girlfriend, but uh, the sister. And so this was, you know, obviously they had a lot of money, but they lived in a very humble place, like a rural, Tongan was a more, they lived in a rural part of Tongan, which, but you could get in an hour or so to Xiamen City, which is really a nice city. It's on the, on the coast, I guess, I guess, and uh, there's some nice universities there, some nice famous temples there. I forget the name of the temple, uh, but there's a nice temple there. Definitely some nice things there. And uh, there's an island called Gulang Yu, which is like uh, famous for classical music somehow. And it's kind of a strange place. They're playing a lot of classical music all the time, and it's, it seemed very touristy. But I enjoyed Xiamen. We went to a, a theme park, which was a replication of the Forbidden City in Beijing, too, which was kind of bizarre. But there are these kind of places in China, and uh, they film movies there apparently. And I saw a cockfight there, which I still remember, which was kind of interesting, I suppose. And uh, maybe a little violent, but um, that was kind of the experience. I was sick and I, I couldn't do a whole lot. And she wasn't telling her family that we were together at that time, because we hadn't been together that long. So I was kind of pretending I was just a friend, although I wanted to be with her, but I was sick. So it was kind of a, a weird kind of experience. So, I don't know, then after that New Year's holiday, I kind of went back to Fuzhou City, continued working uh, from Jan maybe February to April. I don't know if I have that many memories of, uh, of Fuzhou. I was just enjoying the, the food. They ate a lot of seafood there. and They ate a lot of fruit, some dried fruits, some fresh fruit, something called longan, which is like... A, something maybe similar to a lychee that's kind of cool they have pomelos there persimmons and things seem pretty exotic but uh i was enjo somewhat enjoying fujo there was some culture shock obviously as you might be able to tell but i enjoyed myself i, I liked living in this campus it was quite beautiful and uh, but i was feeling insular and so the relationship wasn't always the most harmonious too but we were committed to sticking together to some degree, but I I did want to leave Fujian, and she was luckily she was going to graduate that year, so she wasn't tied to anywhere, so we didn't have to stay in Fujian or Fuzhou, although it might have been nice to stay another year at that school, but that school only lasted a few more years after I left, and then it was demolished, unfortunately. But uh, anyway, we uh, I decided to look into other schools and I looked into Nanjing because I thought Nanjing was exciting and I also looked at a place called Yichang in uh, Hubei province and Yichang is it's where the the I don't know like the the river starts to go to the three gorges and at that time the three gorges dam was in the news and it sounded like a might be interesting to see the three gorges before it was gone so I looked into Yichang and I also looked into Xi'an, the old uh, capital of China. And I also looked into a place called, I saw a place called uh, Suzhou in the north of Jiangsu province, maybe three or four hour bus ride from Nanjing. And uh, I ended up going there after Fuzhou. 
And one of the reasons I went there is because they really were keen on, I'd applied at a university there because I wanted to teach maybe university students and I could. And it was a place called the China University of Mining and Technology. And what happened was they were keen on recruiting uh, teachers and I had some email communication with them and they offered to pay for me to take a train to to uh, the city. They would show me the campus. I would meet people there and then I would go back. It, and it was a long weekend sometime in, I think it was April. And uh, so they basically did this. So what's strange is I had to take a 30 hour train ride because there was no direct train to that place. And uh, I went, it was kind of the milk run train. It went, it was interesting because it went through all these towns and stuff and I got to see quite a bit, but I ended up something like 30 hours there and stayed two nights and then went another 30 hours back. But I did those things at that time, which was uh, kind of fun. But uh, I picked a good time of year to go to Sizo because it had some really beautiful uh, scenery in the spring. Spring was the best time to be there, which was unfortunate because it could get pretty grim at other times of years, which I'll probably talk about when I talk about Shuzo in another podcast. But it kind of won me over. They were very nice to me. They gave me kind of a banquet dinner and stuff. And uh, I got a tour of the campus, got a tour of the city. They had some terracotta warriors, like small ones, not not big ones. And I got to see that. And so that was kind of cool. So then I ended up deciding, well, I'm going to move to Shuzhou. So I ended up uh, eventually moving there. And I, I offered the invitation to my girlfriend to come with me to Shuzhou. And maybe she could find a job there. And um, I wasn't sure she would come. and uh, But she ended up living with me there. So it was an that that created an interesting dynamic, which I'll get into later. But uh, yeah, so I'd already kind of decided on Shuzhou, but then then in May there was a kind of another long weekend, another holiday. I'm trying to remember then what the holiday was for, but in May there was a May Day or something. It was maybe it's some kind of something to do with the Communist Party or something. I'm not sure, but they had a holiday in May where there was a week off, and so. My girlfriend and I went to, uh, she'd never taken a plane before. And she'd, she'd only ever been in Fujian province and in Jiangxi province, which is uh, to the, what, to the, I guess, to the west of Fujian. She'd only ever been to those two provinces. And we went to Hubei province. We decided to go to the city of Wuhan, which is also like on the Yangtze River, and proved to be another interesting place. Um, it was kind of another place that felt exciting and uh, full of life and interesting people. And so we flew to Wuhan and that was probably interesting for her at the time because she'd never flown before. And she was only she was only about a year and a half younger than me or something. So anyway, we flew to Wuhan and in Wuhan we uh, took in the scenery. We didn't see everything that was famous in Wuhan. We uh, we actually spent a lot of our money in a more fancy hotel than we were used to, which is, which was fine. It still wasn't that expensive. I was making a reasonable amount of money, and in uh, China the apartment was subsidized, so I didn't have to pay for the apartment. So I could save quite a bit of money, and um, I used a lot of that money on a trip that summer, which we'll talk about in another podcast. 
but in Wuhan we kind of saw the scenery, we enjoyed ourselves, they had some interesting cuisine there, they ate some crawfish and things like that, which I hadn't seen before, and uh, that was kind of cool, and there was an interesting night market kind of place that we went to, it was really vibrant, and um, we saw quite a few foreigners there, I guess people go to Wuhan, it's a certainly a big city, it's probably bigger than Fuzhou city, and um, we enjoyed ourselves and then we had a few more days and we didn't know where to go and my girlfriend suggested a place called um, Jingzhou which is I don't know a three-hour bus ride from Wuhan and I hadn't heard of this place before and I was we just went there and it proved to be one of the more interesting cities that I maybe visited in China it was they had a big wall and it was all very traditional there was a really interesting Taoist temple it was very compact you could get away around everywhere by motorcycle or or by walking and uh, it was very bustling and and Hubei is where Yichang was which is the three gorges and I think Yichang might have been a bit like that but Jingzhou was very traditional and I don't think a lot of foreigners went there. And there were some interesting temples, you have, like I said, and the walls, and uh, people were harvesting, uh, what uh, what do we call it, uh, like uh, centipedes for their medicinal purposes, and they were poisonous centipedes. And at night, you go down by the walls, and uh, people were having these jars and getting centipedes. It was wild. It was really memorable. And uh, apparently, centipedes, there were more of these centipedes in that part of China. And... When I lived in Shuzhou, there were centipedes there too, but uh, definitely in Jingzhou, there was a lot of stuff like that. So definitely a memorable uh, experience. I'd love to go back to Jingzhou somewhere. It's a, you know, somewhere you could go and just enjoy the ambiance. It's nothing too big. The, the cuisine felt a bit spicier there, a little bit kind of home-cooked, nice. Uh, it was an interesting place. There's a famous person in Chinese history, Guanggong, there. Uh, there was a temple devoted to Guanggong. We really enjoyed that uh, trip. I would say more so tr that trip than the trip to Shanghai, Suzhou, and Nanjing. Um, but then, I'd, uh, shortly after that, I think I accepted the job in Suzhou. And so we had the summer, and uh, my girlfriend was going to stay for the summer or part of the summer with me in Fuzhou and then we could think about moving to Jiangsu province but uh, during this time we were planning a trip we were going to go to Manchuria uh, which is in the far north of China which is border some of it borders Russia maybe borders inner Mongolia it's north of Beijing right it's uh, but uh, this teacher at the school of mine uh, he said basically that Manchuria is uh, a lot um, a lot like Canada possibly and it might not be very interesting it's also a very maybe industrial and I don't know it might not be that interesting to me and so we ended up booking a holiday to go to the west of China to China's Xinjiang region and we were going to start in uh, Xinjiang in the capital of Ulamuchi and then we were going to make our way to Beijing. And this trip took uh, almost three weeks. Part of it was somewhat of a loosely organized tour, but I think my girlfriend was a bit nervous about Xinjiang because it's like a big place, but it's the frontier. It's a lot of Uyghurs and, and Muslim 
people there. It's a little unfamiliar. And uh, in a, the next time I talk about China, I'm going to talk about that trip for sure. But uh, that's what my experiences of the city of uh, Fuzhou. I hope you uh, found that interesting. And uh, we'll talk again soon uh, more about China. So this is Mark A. for further reflections. Well, that does it for another episode. Just a reminder, the website for this podcast is furtherreflections.net. There you can find the episode archive. You can find more about myself. You can support the podcast. And you can see the archive of my previous podcast, Reflections On. Thanks for listening.